are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community about the truth about food triggers. Can't wait to have this conversation today with you, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. So we're going to talk about food triggers today. This is probably one of the most talked about topics in our Facebook group, Healing Migraines Naturally. Wouldn't you say, Mary? I would absolutely agree. And who doesn't love to talk about food? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, if it's giving you a migraine, right? I mean, it's kind of like you develop a love-hate relationship with food, right? Yes, yes. You know, it's really sad when you see people talking about all the fun things that they have to avoid and you know, their favorite foods being put off the table because they have to avoid their triggers. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So I can't wait to tackle this today because migraine sufferers are being given the absolute wrong advice to track food triggers. And I see this all over the migraine community. I see this false information being propagated by, you know, migraine.com and some of these real prominent pharmaceutical sponsored websites and advocacy groups for migraines. There are how many books written about migraine diets, etc. So I cannot wait to talk about this. So yes, you heard me right. You should not be even thinking about food triggers if you have migraines. So let's dive into this. And Just so you know, if this is the first time that you're listening to me, I started getting migraines every other day when I was in my early 20s. My own recovery and healing experience from recovering from chronic migraines is what motivated me to leave my previous career and kind of move my family across the country and kind of start over again as a naturopathic physician. So I am here, I fully know now that my calling in life is to help other women with chronic migraines restore their health so they no longer get them, just like what happened to me. Like I say, if you're just listening to me for the first time, this is where I'm coming from. Somebody that's walked in your shoes and I'm telling you from my own experience, from my own study, from my own experience working with hundreds of women with chronic migraines, We do not need to obsess about food triggers. This sounds like a major paradigm shift for most people, I would say. Exactly. First, let's talk about what happens when we experience pain. We have to appreciate sort of the underlying psychology behind this. So we are wired that when we experience pain, we are wired to figure out what caused the pain, right? If we don't do that, none of us humans would have survived for very long. (laughs) We all would have died out. (laughs) Evolutionary protective mechanism. Exactly, exactly. And we will do anything to get out of pain, physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. We will do anything to get out of pain, again, for our survival. And so when we experience pain, the mind goes into action. It immediately starts running through everything that happened recently, everything that we had done recently, 
to sort of decipher what caused the pain so that we can avoid it in the future. We have to appreciate this. Otherwise, we never would have survived. So sometimes it's very obvious what is causing the pain. If we put our hand on a hot stove and we feel that pain, the reflexes kick in, remove the hand from the stove, the pain starts to recede. Our mind doesn't have to work too hard to figure out why our hand started to hurt, right? It's extremely obvious. The problem comes in when people get a migraine, it's not obvious what caused the pain. Could be any number of things that cause the pain. And so when we have an ambiguous source of pain, this is when the mind can't figure it out and it starts to go into overdrive, right? Again, we're wired to figure it out, but if it's not obvious to us, we're going to start to get obsessive on this. We are really going to start sort of hounding ourselves, going over everything in a search for what's causing the pain. Right. And so our food becomes a very easy target for the mind to latch onto. The mind is not going to rest until it figures out where this pain is coming from. And so the food becomes that easy target for the mind to latch onto. Because what do we do all day long? We eat, right? I mean, at least three meals a day, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have your lunch and two hours later, you start to get a migraine. It's sort of like, well, what was the last thing I did? I ate lunch, right? If the last thing we did was sit out in the sun, we're going to blame the sun first. But most of us in the modern life, we're, you know, eating lunch, going back to work, right? It's not too much of a mystery. You know, what have I done prior to getting this migraine? Most of the time, it's going to be eat a meal. Right. And so the mind latches onto that and starts to run down, okay, what was it in the meal, right? Was it the soy sauce on the, you know, Kung Pao chicken? Was it the tomatoes? You know, like then we start to go item by item, right? over what we ate. Right. So we have this wiring, this innate wiring that we are up against, this innate psychology that we are up against to have the mind activate itself to uncover where the pain is coming from. You combine that with what the doctors are actually telling us to do. Doctors are actually telling people, all right, get out a piece of paper, write down everything you eat, and then write down every time you get a migraine see what correlations you find. Right. Right. Great way to sell books is to tell people there's a special diet for a health condition, right? Every health condition, there's a hundred books on how to eat for that health condition, right? Great way to sell a migraine book is to come up with your own special migraine diet, right? So this generates a tremendous amount of food anxiety for migraine sufferers, Mm. right? So eating is supposed to be one of the foundational pleasures in life. Mm -hmm. Again, we humans, we've been sitting around a campfire and eating with our kin for as long as we've been around, (laughs) right? Right? Sharing a meal with our kin bonds us to people, right? Making food for our loved ones. How do we express our love, right? How do we feel love, right? You you know, people have memories going over to grandma's house and all the cookies and all the little things she would make for us, right? Right. It's crazy how much, like if you really start to dissect our relationship with people and food, it's amazing. Yes. 
how much food is so integral in what we do. Like Exactly. You cannot think of a celebration that doesn't involve a form of food that's specific to that celebration. Exactly. And as we're recording this, we're coming up to Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like you just look forward to that meal all year round. Yeah. Right? The favorite things, you know, every family has their own, you know, kind of unique foods that they make, right? It's like something that we're really looking forward to every year. I mean, just thinking about those foods genuinely does bring up those memories. It's Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about my former in-laws and they literally had purple potatoes, purple mashed potatoes. <laughs> and every time I think about purple mashed potatoes, I think of them. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. And those good times, right? Mm-hmm. So what this obsession, what this incorrect advice to focus on our food, right? It undermines this fundamental part of being a human being, Mm -hmm. which is sharing food with our kin. And it generates food anxiety. Mm -hmm. It generates a fear of eating, a resentment against eating, Mm. right? Why can't I eat anything? Why does everybody else get to eat all this stuff? And it makes me sick, right? So it has a really detrimental effect on one of the most foundational aspects of being a human being. Right. So let me ask you a question. This comes back from my college statistics days. We always, you know, say correlation is not causation. Mm -hmm. And you kind of said, you know, just because the doctors say, hey, go through your diet and see what correlates to your migraines, that doesn't necessarily mean that the food is the actual cause, Mm -hmm. correct? So what is the actual cause? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's a big, huge can of worms, but yes, (laughs) I mean, in our human mind that's looking for the cause of the pain, we look at the food and go, oh, the food caused the migraine. Right. Instead of what's the actual cause. Exactly. And when people do this food tracking exercise, Mm -hmm. sometimes they will uncover some correlations. Right. Right. And then sometimes when our mind starts to search for what caused the pain, the thing that really makes the most sense was the meal that we ate. Right. Especially if it's confirmed, like consistently, every time I go out for Chinese Mm -hmm. food, the MSG gives me a headache, like if Mm -hmm. a migraine, if people have that same trigger response over and over and over again the automatic conclusion in most minds would be, oh, it's the MSG that caused it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the tomatoes. It's the avocados. It's the beans. It's the almonds. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So how can a food be a poison for some people? This is the question that has to be answered. So we're blaming the food. We're putting the blame on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So let me walk everybody through what happens with our digestive process. We have to understand the normal physiology of the digestive tract in order to understand what's going on with this misguided focus on food triggers. Mm -hmm. So when we eat food, when we have a properly functioning digestive tract, 
the digestive tract breaks the food down. And so if we eat some broccoli, the digestive tract is going to break that broccoli down. You know, we chew the broccoli into small pieces and then we swallow it. And then it churns in the stomach and the stomach breaks the broccoli down into smaller pieces. And then it goes into the small intestine. And then in the small intestine, it has to completely break apart that broccoli into the micronutrients, the little vitamins and minerals, and the macronutrients, the protein, Mm -hmm. the fat, the carbohydrates that are in our foods, okay? Mm -hmm. Until there's no broccoli left, right? Mm -hmm. It's been completely broken down. Then those nutrients travel from the small intestine into the bloodstream. Now, when we think of those nutrients going into the bloodstream, most people assume that they just start to go out into the bloodstream and just start to circulate throughout the entire body. This is not true. Our digestive tract is drained by what are called the portal veins. So our protein, our amino acids from our protein and our carbohydrates, our glucose from our carbohydrates and our fatty acids from our fat and our micronutrients They don't just start traveling around the body first. First, they go into the portal veins. The portal veins go directly to the liver. Our liver detoxifies everything in the body. Our liver has to detoxify the food that we eat. Most people don't know this. I did not know this until I went to naturopathic medical school and had to take anatomy and physiology and all of the basic sciences that are required to be a licensed physician. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. So our liver, before anything starts to circulate throughout the body, our liver has to process it. So we think of our liver as like detoxifying our alcohol, detoxifying our coffee, the caffeine that we drink, right? right? Your liver has to detoxify Even the broccoli, even the white rice, even the chicken, even the olive oil, even the Doritos. Sounds like a busy, busy. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Some of us than others, but. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So there's two things that have to be functioning properly when we eat. So when everything is functioning properly. Our digestive tract is completely breaking down the food. And then the liver is able to completely detoxify the food as it goes through the liver. Detoxify all of the little micronutrients that are in the broccoli. And so when that happens, when that is all functioning properly, we don't have symptoms after we eat. Now let's go through what is happening within the digestive tract, and the liver of somebody who has chronic migraines. This is so fascinating to me. I'm like, I'm hanging on your every word. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> who knew that the liver was so such a cliffhanger, right? Right. <laughs> so when you have chronic migraines, I have never had a client where this was not the case. So when you have chronic migraines, your digestive tract is not completely breaking the food down. You might have some good days and some bad days. There might be some days where your digestive tract is pretty much breaking down the food. You're going to have some days where it's not. 
You may have some days where it's never breaking down the food if you're really suffering. But if you have chronic migraines, your digestive tract is not breaking the food down all the way. These people typically also will have digestive symptoms on top of migraines. Correct. So if you eat broccoli and you don't break it down properly, you're going to have little undigested pieces of broccoli going into those portal veins and having to be processed by your liver. Now, can you imagine if your liver has to detoxify the little micronutrients and properly broken down broccoli, can you imagine what happens when an actual little piece of broccoli goes through there? It's going to completely bog down your liver. And when the liver cannot clear the food properly, when the liver cannot detoxify the food properly, detoxify the little micronutrients in the food properly, we are going to feel sick. When your liver can't detoxify the alcohol that you drink, how do you feel the next morning? You don't feel too good, (laughs) right? So when there's a big backlog in the liver, we don't feel well. So this is why people are eating and then getting a migraine afterwards because they're not properly breaking the food down and then that's overloading the liver and there's it's like a hangover almost right so does the liver and the digestive system like send messages to your brain to start hurting like how does that go i mean your liver's in your abdomen how does your brain get the message to hurt from that yeah so when these you have to appreciate What's happening all the time in the body? So we are continuously generating toxins, metabolic waste material. When our cells are doing their work, when your muscles are moving, anything that happens in the body, the cells that are doing that work, they are generating their own metabolic waste material. Mm -hmm. Then our liver is designed to handle that, right? Mm. Then we are exposed to toxins in the environment the food supply, the water supply, the air supply. We take medications that are toxic and have to be cleared by the liver. Can you appreciate what the liver in the modern era is up against here? (laughs) Like he's a heavy lifter. (laughs) Exactly. So most people are hanging on by a thread. If the liver is not able to process those toxic molecules and they continue to circulate in the bloodstream, Mm -hmm. they're toxic. We don't feel good when that stuff is circulating in the bloodstream. We're going to feel sick. How do you feel when you have a hangover and you've got that excess alcohol (laughs) that your body is trying to process? Doesn't feel good. I'm giggling just because I don't drink at all. Like, I don't know what a hangover feels like. Okay. (laughs) So, like, I'm assuming it sucks, but I don't drink. So, (laughs) yeah, it's not pleasant, right? I'm sure you've heard the stories, you know, it's no picnic. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, absolutely. So if we eat, so we're already hanging on by a thread and then we eat a meal that we don't properly digest and break down. And then we've got this big influx of food that now needs to be processed. Then we're going to have a big influx in the bloodstream of toxins and we're not going to feel good. That makes so much sense. I was trying to figure out if there was like a a neuron connection that was like sent up to the brain saying, hey, this, need, you know, my body needs help, hurt, hurt, hurt. But it makes sense. Like the toxins actually escape the liver and go to the brain. 
Well, you know, we don't know with migraines, they do not know the exact physiology or what would be called pathophysiology. They don't know the exact mechanisms by which migraines get kicked off. It's an unbelievably complex disorder because we have so many symptoms, right? It's not just the head pain. It's all other kinds of symptoms that people will have with the pain. And some people don't even get head pain, right? They get all the other symptoms. Right. So we have not yet decoded exactly what's happening with migraines. And so it could be a little both or, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But what we do know is that when we have excess metabolic waste material and toxins circulating in the bloodstream, the liver can't keep up with and get out, we don't feel well. Yeah. And we know that just from our own experience, maybe not your personal experience, right? But when you think of a hangover and you have that excess alcohol that your body can't process, you don't feel well. Right. So some people's digestive tract has a harder time, right? If our digestive tract is functioning properly, we should be able to digest real food. If somebody eats a whole bag of Doritos and doesn't feel well, nobody's surprised. But we should be able to eat almonds. We should be able to eat bananas, avocados, pork, soy sauce. We should be able to eat real food. People have been eating soy sauce for thousands of years. And I know I've heard say in the group multiple times that, you know, even if there's artificial flavoring or food or like MSG or whatever, a normal body that is in a state of health can handle that to some degree. Correct. It should be able to handle it. Correct. Those preservatives, et cetera, those will be detoxified by the liver if we have the capacity to do so. If our liver is hanging on by a thread and we have something with a little bit of a preservative in there, okay, now I just overloaded my liver and I'm not going to feel well. But if I have capacity there, I can go in a restaurant and, you know, a lot of restaurant food is processed food, right? And so there might be some preservatives in there, right? Well, again, if I'm eating, everybody knows that if every day we're eating, you know, highly processed and chemical laden food, everybody knows that we're not going to feel well, right? But we should be able to go to a restaurant and order off the menu and have that, right? We should be able to eat a cupcake. We should be able to go over to a friend's house and eat the meal they prepared. when. You know, and then of course, everybody knows that most of the time we need to be eating a health supporting diet. I I mean, again, this is not, you know, going out on a big limb. Everybody knows this, right? The question that migraine sufferers have is why can't I eat in a restaurant? Why can't I have something with soy sauce on it at a friend's house, right? Why can't I eat tomatoes? The question comes, the answer comes down to our digestive function. Our digestive tract should be able to break down tomatoes fully. If our digestion is not functioning properly and we've got little, like actual little tomato molecules entering that portal vein and going to the liver, we're going to have a problem. The liver is not designed to detoxify little tomato chunks. It's designed to detoxify the micronutrients that are in the tomato. So this might be another silly question, but is there like the digestive system has a little bit bigger spaces that food are getting through? Like, Okay, great question. (laughs) Yeah. 
You can hear how excited I am with this question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just didn't know how exactly to word it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there are many aspects of improper digestive function. It can go wrong in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. So one area where our digestive function can go wrong is we can start to develop little gaps in the cells that line our digestive tract. So I want you to think of your small intestine, right? It's like this little windy tube. So the cells that line our small intestine, actually the entire digestive tract, but we'll stay focused on the small intestine. Mm -hmm. The cells that line the small intestine are the same type of cells that make up our skin. Our skin forms a barrier between us and the outside world, right? We can absorb things through our skin, but I mean, if I put a drop of water on my skin, it's going to sit there. Right. It's a barrier between me and the outside world. And those cells, right? Look at your skin on your arm right now, right? When our skin is healthy, those cells are tightly butted up against each other. If somebody has a skin condition, well, geez, you know, those cells are not butting up against each other. Now my skin is kind of weeping, right? It's a cracked little bleeding, weeping, right? Exactly. We've got a little serum leaking out from us coming up to the outside, right? If that barrier is not tight. So those same cells line our digestive tract because we have to have a barrier between the outside world and us in our digestive tract too, right? We actually have a hole through the middle of us that is outside the body. It's really interesting to think about, right? We think that we're swallowing our food. We're putting the food inside of us. We're actually not. We're putting it in a tube, a little donut hole that goes all the way through us. Yeah, that's trippy to think about. (laughs) Right? Isn't that funny to think of? And so the cells that line our digestive tract are that barrier between the outside world and us, just like our skin is. And so what happens in the digestive tract very frequently to people is the cells that line the digestive tract, if their health declines, then they start to open up little gaps in between themselves. And so this allows little undigested pieces of broccoli to get into the bloodstream, into those portal veins. Because it's what should happen is we should have that tight barrier. And those cells in the digestive tract are there to say, okay, no, you're not fully broken down yet, broccoli. I'm not letting you in. Oh, here's a little magnesium from the broccoli. Well, I'm going to let that in. Right? Here's a little micronutrient from the broccoli. I'm going to let that in. That's broken down all the way. But this little piece, this little chewed up piece of broccoli that's not fully broken down yet, I'm not going to let that in yet. It's kind of like these little things make you go, oh my gosh, how miraculous our little bodies are. Like it's just incredible. Yeah. I know, right? Exactly. We are amazing, Mm -hmm. amazing beings, right? Highly, highly complex. And we come in with all these drugs and supplements and everything else thinking that we're we're smarter. (laughs) We're not. (laughs) So you can see, right? So If the cells that line my digestive tract aren't able to do their job properly, I'm going to get these little leaks of undigested food into the portal vein, and then my liver is going to be completely overwhelmed. So if I have something going on in my digestive tract, let's say I don't have 
you know, adequate motility, adequate movement in the digestive tract, adequate enzymes, adequate hydrochloric acid production, then maybe for me, that means I don't break down tomatoes all the way. And then every time I eat a tomato, three hours later, I'm getting a pounding migraine and I'm blaming the tomato and I'm resenting my tomatoes. And I'm sitting here going, you know, everybody else can eat tomatoes. What is it about me that I'm being punished that I can't eat tomatoes? I can't eat pizza. I can't eat pasta. I can't have tomato sauce, right? So I understand better and hopefully everybody else. Again, it's not the tomato. There's a reason the digestive system isn't working. Mm -hmm. Is there one reason that it stops working or like, is it because we put too much junk in our system? Like how does that start the breakdown of the digestive system in the first place? Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Listen how excited you are now. (laughs) I know, right? I feel like my job is just to get you excited. (laughs) I know. Get me on my soapbox every time. So our digestive tract in the modern age here is under continuous assault. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you. I was a kid in the 70s, 80s. I have an 11-year-old daughter. By the time I was 11, in 1983, Mm -hmm. I could not tell you how many antibiotics I had been on. I cannot tell you how many children's Tylenols I had been given. Because I was a typical American kid with strep throat. I mean, I can remember laying in bed with a strep throat, right? Colds, you know, colds, allergies, all these kinds of things. Wow. My 11-year-old has never been on antibiotics. Before COVID, her classroom, there was strep throat outbreaks, you know, once a month we were getting a letter home from the school, strep throat in the classroom. My daughter never got strep throat. So we unfortunately overall, right, most Americans, adults and kids, are not in a very good state of health. We are more likely to get these types of acute illnesses, and then we treat them incorrectly by giving all these antibiotics and all these suppressive medications, etc. So this is for most people, this is what's going to start the process. When we take antibiotics, the antibiotics don't just kill the bad bugs. They kill all of the beneficial bacteria in our digestive tract. And so that's one thing when we have, when our liver is overworked, the bile, this is all, we'll do a whole nother podcast on liver function, but the bile, the liver, when it detoxifies these molecules, it's got to get it out of the body. And so the liver puts these toxic molecules in our bile. The bile is then stored in the gallbladder and excreted into the small intestine when we eat. That bile helps us digest the fats that we've eaten, but at the same time, it contains all these toxic substances. And so imagine what it's like for your small intestine to be continuously inundated with all these highly toxic substances in the bile. That's going to start to strain your small intestine. So those are two very common reasons why the digestion starts to go downhill. Another reason is people don't have health supportive eating habits. And that's a whole nother ballgame, too. But you should not have any awareness of your digestive tract. So Americans think that it's like typical to have heartburn, it's typical to be bloated by the end of the day. Most Americans don't know that you should have 
at least one bowel movement a day. So we shouldn't be having cramping and gas. We should be having bowel movements. We should be having an adequate appetite. I can't tell you how many of my clients, when they come to me, their appetite is so low. So if we don't have good digestive function, our appetite is going to decrease, right? If the body says, you know what, I can't really process this food too well, let me lower her appetite so she eats less, right? It's a protective mechanism. It's the body protecting itself from us putting food in that it can't process. But a lot of women, especially as we get older, we think this is just normal. A lot of women want to lose weight anyway. And so they say, oh, well, it's a good thing I'm not that hungry. Yeah. Right. Well, and just the heartburn thing alone. I mean, if you put 10 of my friends in the state in one room, I would say more than half of us have heartburn issues or are on medication for that. Mm -hmm. Like it's so, so common. It's so common. Right. So our digestion should be functioning without our conscious awareness. And so this is something, like I say, I can't think of a client that I've worked with that had adequate digestive function. Now, the things that people are being told, this is kind of a big fad. When you go on the internet now, you're going to hear a lot about digestive function. And the things that people are doing, unfortunately, are the wrong things, but they're making a lot of money for the supplement industry. Yes. Our episode three of this podcast, we talked about what the multi-billion dollar supplement industry doesn't want you to know. And so people are taking these really, really expensive supplements for quote-unquote digestive health, which are not addressing the underlying problems. So like, for example, I'll just give you one example. I mentioned if we don't have enough hydrochloric acid in the stomach, well, how are we going to break our food down properly? That's like the first thing that's supposed to happen. And so people will start taking supplemental hydrochloric acid. So that does not address the real root We want our stomach to make the hydrochloric acid. That's what it is supposed to do. If we take supplemental hydrochloric acid, we're not restoring the stomach to proper function. We're just adding extra hydrochloric acid. So then the stomach is like, well, why should I make it if she's going to take it in a pill? It's almost like just a crutch. It is a total crutch. It's a total Band-Aid. You're just kind of like hobbling along. Exactly. And then it kind of makes the stomach lazy. And so then when people stop, you know, they say, well, geez, I'm tired of taking this hydrochloric acid. Let me stop taking it. Well, then the stomach is like, whoa, wait a minute. What's she doing? I'm not used to making hydrochloric acid. She was taking it in a tablet. And so then people have real bad digestion after they stop the hydrochloric acid, right? Because their stomach isn't making it. This is one real common example. This is what the multi-billion dollar supplement industry is selling you, right? It's selling you little crutches for your digestive tract. Yeah, I have a question about, so I hear a lot of positive about pre and probiotics. Is that helpful to your system or harmful? So I only recommend probiotics to my clients that need that. This is another thing that the multi-billion dollar supplement industry is pushing on everybody is probiotics. I mean, they're even putting it in like uh, chocolate. I was in Costco. They sell chocolate with quote unquote probiotics (laughs) in the chocolate. Can you imagine the eye roll that I had in the aisle there? (laughs) 
I don't know, but something that just takes away from the appeal of chocolate for me. I'm like, ooh. I know, right? <laughs> if I'm taking a probiotic, I want it to be in a capsule. Like, that's it. I know, oh, right? Gosh. That's- so it's like, oh, well, I'm getting my, uh, you know, it's sort of like a little, well, I'm eating chocolate, but it has probiotics, right? It's like a little. Oh, it's so, like to alleviate the guilt. Exactly, the right. So sometimes people do need to repopulate the beneficial gut bacteria. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes people have digestive issues that if we add more bacteria to their digestive tract, they're going to feel real sick. The other thing is the bacteria in our digestive tract, they live on the food that we eat. This is another very important thing to realize. And so different Human populations around the world, different diets, they have different bacteria in their digestive tract, right? The beneficial bacteria in our digestive tract help us digest our food. And so if I'm living in India and I'm eating a diet where every meal I'm having some rice and I'm having some legumes or some beans, I'm going to have very different beneficial bacteria in my digestive tract to help break that down. Than if I'm living in Montana and I'm having fresh beef with every meal. So, just taking a capsule of a preset gut bacteria may or may not be beneficial to us, depending on our native diet, right? May aggravate existing conditions in the digestive tract. And if we're not eating, like if we're eating, if every day we have a bag of Doritos, we're going to have the type of bacteria in our digestive tract that like to eat Doritos. And if we just take a little capsule of probiotics, or we have our chocolate with our probiotics, or we have our Activa yogurt with our probiotics, those bacteria are going to die off because they don't eat Doritos. So we're supplementing bacteria that are just going to die off anyway. So when I work with my clients, we assess, okay, what do you like to eat? How are you eating? If you're not eating in a health supportive way, I help people make changes so that they're eating the foods that they like to eat, but they're eating them in a health supportive way. And then the bacteria that they need to digest the food that they like to eat are going to naturally flourish in that environment. Yes. So again, we have this conception culturally that our body is just sort of like a machine or something like that, that it's not even alive in some ways, right? And that you just put this stuff into the body and it's just going to work. If I take probiotics, it's just going to work because some supplement company said that in this capsule are the bacteria that everybody needs for their digestive tract. I mean, medically and the supplement arena, it's very like one size. Correct. Mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, I was just saying, I'm going to say not to change directions too much, but I'm just sitting here thinking about how often the flip side of what foods do I avoid comes up in the group. But the flip side of that is what should I eat? And one of the topics is super regularly like, well, I started eating keto and my migraines got better. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting here going, what is it about keto? That makes people feel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So I do not recommend keto. Right. When we are eating a ketogenic diet, 
we will urinate out a ton of minerals right out of the body. So it's a nutrient depleting diet, which is going to be counterproductive to our health. That's number one. And so I do not recommend that. The other thing with keto, just on a practical level, is maybe you want to go over to somebody's house and have Thanksgiving dinner with them and you want to have a piece of pumpkin pie. Right. Maybe you want to go to a restaurant and order off the menu without causing a big scene and making it a five-minute special order while everybody else at the table sits there, right? It's really not a practical diet on a day-to-day level. So from a health standpoint, it undermines our health the longer and longer we do a ketogenic diet because it is a nutrient-wasting diet. That is to say, we urinate the ketosis that we enter into creates a diuretic effect, and then we urinate out minerals in the urine. Okay, so it undermines our health over time. And then from a practical, just live your life in a reasonable way, it's really untenable way to live. The reason why it helps some people is because you will keep your blood sugar very steady on a ketogenic diet. And when we have blood sugar ups and downs, that's a great way to get a migraine because of the hormone cascading, which I won't go into detail now, because of that hormone cascading effect that very frequently will generate migraines for people. And so that will be the main reason why people will notice a positive effect at first with a ketogenic diet. Now, with my clients, I teach them how to eat in a way that keeps their blood sugar steady, but allows them to eat in a normal way, Mm -hmm. allows them to eat the foods that they like, allows them to go to a restaurant and order off the menu, allows them to go to Thanksgiving dinner and have Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to go to these drastic extreme diets to keep our blood sugar steady. It's not necessary. And I like that you bring up the point of like how we don't need to be obsessive. I think there's so much obsession involved in eating food anyway. Like there's so many quote unquote rules because of the diet industry. And oh my gosh, you know, think back to when it was, you shouldn't eat milk. And then it was, you should eat milk. Like there's so many obsessive rules coming from so many different industries anyways. Like we don't need more obsessions. 100%. And let alone migraine sufferers don't need to become more obsessed about their food. Right? Right. You know, we've really come full circle with what we were talking about before. All of this food obsession, particularly for migraine sufferers, you know, my heart really is, is that it completely undermines our relationship to our loved ones, our friends, our ability to socialize, enjoy holidays, go over to somebody's house and eat something. And it completely undermines our own personal enjoyment in what we're eating. It undermines our trust in our own body, right? We start to develop a resentment against ourselves. Why can't I eat a tomato, right? We can't resent ourselves and feel good. Right. And I know you're really big on, you know, you have to treat mind, body, and spirit. And if we're sitting here, you know, beating ourselves up over not being able to eat, That adds to stress, that adds to frustration, which cannot be good even on a chemical level for our body. Exactly, 100%. But like I say, unfortunately, we have been told to obsess to this level 
by all of the migraine diet blockbuster books and our neurologists and all of this stuff, we have been told to obsess over what we're eating. And I'm here to tell everybody that do not have to live that way. When I work with my clients, I have worked with many clients who came to me on a very, very reduced food list. Because once you go down this road of tracking your food triggers, then the number of foods that you identify as triggering your migraines keeps growing and growing and growing. It starts out with tomatoes. And 10 years later, literally, I've worked with people. The only thing that they can eat is chicken, rice, broccoli, and olive oil. That's it. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. It's no way to live. No. (laughs) Because if we do not address the underlying digestion, the digestion will continue to degrade. And what started out as a difficulty breaking down tomatoes moves into almonds and moves into bananas and moves into pork and the whole thing, right? If we don't turn that around, it continues to degrade more and more foods we have a problem with. And if we don't address the liver, we're going to continue to suffer. And so that food list, that restricted food list, grows and grows and grows. I can't tell you how many clients, after a few weeks of working with me, they go into a restaurant, they order off the menu, and they say to me, it was so nice being there with my kids and ordering off the menu and not having it be a five-minute ordeal for everybody, everybody waiting there for me, you know, questioning the waiter, what's in the sauce, and, you know, can you hold this all, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Because we don't want to live like that. We don't. It's embarrassing for people, right? Yeah. We don't want to be on the spotlight like that. We just want to be able to order off the menu and eat, right? Relax and enjoy, yes. Exactly. This is one of my... Main, you know, I mean, when I work with my clients, we're working on so many aspects, but I feel so good when I can help my clients just enjoy eating, feel confident going over to somebody's house, having a piece of birthday cake on a birthday, just enjoying these fundamental pleasures of life that are humanity, right? Right. It's like what makes us human, right? Is sharing food with our kin. And so if anybody listening to this is struggling with this, please reach out to me. Let's get you eating the food that you like, not restricting your diet, and being able to confidently sit down and enjoy what you're eating. Life is way too short to not enjoy one of the fundamental pleasures in life. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) Like what a way to end. (laughs) You know, and just like to back you up on that is, Nothing makes me sadder than when we see someone in the group say things like, I really just don't have much to live for anymore. Like that is devastating for anyone. And that's why I think it's so important what you do is people shouldn't have to live like that. No, because when we become isolated, again, we have to go back to human psychology, human origins. When we cannot break bread with our kin, it's no joke. We are being cut off from what makes us human, from love, from appreciation. We can't even allow other people to love and care for us by making us a meal. We can't accept love from our kin. It's very, very devastating. Yeah, exactly. 
I really wanted to talk about this today because I really, really want to get this word out to people because I see this ruining so many lives of chronic migraine sufferers, this food trigger nonsense. The root cause is not the food. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Mary. Enjoyed talking with you today, as always. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on the common podcast platforms. We are just getting launched here. You're finding us in at the beginning. So good for you. Do you have someone in your life who would benefit from what we talked about today? Please share it with them. Please share it on your social media. Email it to them. Please get this information out to people who need it. And if you want to stay connected, please join my free migraine Facebook group with over 11,000 women who are rediscovering a migraine-free life. Go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar ND on Facebook, or you can go to healingmigrainesnaturally.com and we will redirect you there. And again, if you are struggling with chronic migraines, you are tired of, as Mary says, throwing spaghetti at the wall, whether it's with your medications or with your supplements, then please reach out to me. This is my life's work is helping women with chronic migraines. So please reach out and let's see if I can help you too. Thank you, Mary. I will talk to you next week. Awesome. See you then.